How, how many times have you heard one of these sayings or, or maybe even said them yourself? Uh, the check is in the mail. Or uh, I'll be there in five minutes. Right? How about, uh, no, I wasn't sleeping. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's what Vicky always tells me. Yes, you were because you were snoring. How about, how about this one? This is going to hurt me a lot more than it hurts you. Right. Now, I, I'm sure we have all uh, heard or said those a, a time or two, right? I mean, let, let's be honest. Spouses occasionally lie to one another in the name of keeping peace. Uh, parents lie to their children, except mommy and daddy never lie to you guys. Uh, and, and vice versa to avoid family drama, right? Uh, em- employers and employees lie to one another to maintain or uh, to advance careers. Uh, it's no secret politicians lie in order to gain our votes. Uh, we know that nightly news anchors often slant their stories to align with their own particular agendas. Uh, and we know that uh, advertisers and shopkeepers lie to sell products misleading their customers in the name of good business. Like, for instance, a, a store manager that I read about who overheard his clerk telling a customer, he, he was saying to this lady, well, no, ma'am, we haven't had any for a while, and it doesn't look like we'll be getting any anytime soon. One of the manager was horrified, and he went running over to the customer to interrupt this conversation, and he said to her, ma'am, I am so sorry. Don't pay any attention to him. Of course we're going to have some soon. As a matter of fact... I placed an order for it myself last week, and it's due in any minute. So now feeling really self-satisfied and just sure he'd saved a customer, the manager drew the clerk aside and, and said to him sternly, Never, never, never say that we're out of anything. Say we've got it, we've got it on order, or it's coming. And so then calming down maybe a little bit from his, his anger, the manager said, Now what was it that she was asking about anyway? To which the clerk replied, she just wanted to know if we had had any rain. (laughs) So, you know, Mark Twain famously said, a lie can travel around the world while the truth is still lacing up her shoes. And, you know, in our modern world, the truth is we have just come to the point where we expect people to lie. It's, uh, It's just baked into our everyday conversation. And apparently it was no different in ancient Israel Uh, as we're going to see from our text today coming from Psalm 12. And again, if you're joining us for the first time, we're doing a a whole series directly through the entire book of Psalms, and we're only up to 12, so you started at a good time. Uh, The superscription of this psalm reads, To the choir master, according to the Shemineth, a psalm of David. And David writes, Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of men. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in safety for which he groans. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver. Silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. 
You, O Lord, will keep them, and you will guard us from this generation forever. On every side, the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of man. And you know, we aren't, aren't told exactly what incident or time in his life may have caused David to write Psalm 12. We don't know if he was thinking uh, about the men of Keilah who betrayed him into the hands of Saul after he had saved them from the Philistines. Or if he was talking about Shimei who cursed him to his face as David fled from his traitorous son Absalom. Or, or maybe he was uh, thinking of his one-time good friend Ahithophel who stabbed him in the back by counseling Absalom on how best to defeat David. But you know, any, any one or all of those things could have led David to pen the words, Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the, the faithful have vanished from among the children of men. And you know, you can almost feel it in David. He's, he's looking, he's, he's searching for a godly man or for a godly woman. He's looking for faithful folks who love God. He's looking for people who love the truth and who speak the truth. And with all of his scouting around on the human landscape, he arrives at the sad conclusion that there aren't any. He's saying that they're extinct. That they apparently all died out or uh, have just disappeared from the land. And I want you to really try to imagine that. Try to imagine what life would be like if every person that you consider honest and trustworthy and God-fearing disappeared from the world. Just try to imagine that. And David said that's what he's experiencing. He was looking for the holy. He was looking for the faithful. He was looking for the godly, but they had all vanished. He's saying they had vanished just like they have in our day from the schoolhouse and from the courthouse and from the neighbor's houses around the corner and down the street. And sadly, they've even disappeared in many cases from God's house. And, you know, maybe that last one is the saddest of all because there is nothing that is more disheartening than when lies come from the mouths of spiritual leaders. In fact, I, I just read a story online about a, a clergyman who was out for a, an evening walk after supper and he came upon this group of, of young boys, maybe between 8 and 12 years old, and they're all standing around in this big circle. And as he gets closer, he can see uh, that they had surrounded this poor little stray dog. And now concerned that the boys may be hurting the dog, he went over, what are you doing to that dog? And one of the boys said, well, this dog is just an old stray in the neighborhood, Pastor, and uh, we all want him, but only one of us can take him home, so we've decided that whichever lie will get to keep the dog. <laughs> now, of course, the pastor was, was taken aback, and he said, you boys shouldn't be having a contest telling lies. I never heard of such a thing. And then he launches into this 10-minute sermon against lying and we when he had finished and and wrapped up this kind of impromptu message he said why when i was your age i never told a lie <laughs> now there was dead silence for about a minute and just as the pastor was allowing himself to think he had finally gotten through to the boys the smallest one of them gave a a big sigh and said all right fellas give pastor the dog <laughs> but you know as funny as that sounds it's no laughing matter when those who hang out their shingle as dispensers of truth actually end up leading themselves and others astray 
And I want to talk to you about one of the ways they do that. And I'm sure you've all heard this before, that uh, old adage that all religions are fundamentally the same and only superficially different. Uh, Miss Betty and I talked about that right after Sunday school class this morning. You know, when really nothing could be further from the truth, the truth is, as apologist Ravi Zacharias always likes to say, that it is more correct to say that all religions are at best, at best, superficially similar, but fundamentally different. But you know, good luck getting anyone in the academy or in the media uh, or even in many churches to agree with you. And that's because one of the most common accusations flung at Christians by non-Christians when we say that is that we're arrogant. And they'll say uh, things like, how can you believe that you're right Uh, and and all of those uh, Hindus and, and Buddhists and Muslims, all those thousands of other religions are wrong? I mean, isn't it the height of arrogance to claim that Jesus is the way to God? I mean, a way, possibly, but come on, the way? And you know, this, this issue sometimes troubles Christian folks and from time to time can make people reluctant to talk about our faith because we don't want to appear arrogant. We don't want to seem bigoted or intolerant, especially nowadays because this pluralistic view of religion thrives very easily here in the United States and in places like Canada and Europe, where tolerance is valued above everything else. In places where it's a very easy slip from the truth that all people have equal value, and we know that's true, but a slip from all people have equal value to the false claim that all ideas have equal value. But those are two very different concepts. And I'll give you a quick example. Just just suppose... I say to you that uh, just this last week I've gotten into literature in a big way and that uh, in this past weekend I've read the uh, complete works of William Shakespeare, uh, The Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx, uh, Interpretation of Dreams by Sigmund Freud, uh, but I also read uh, If You Give a Mouse a Cookie, uh, Not the Hippopotamus, which is actually one of my favorite kids' books, uh, and a copy of the latest Marvel comic book. Yeah, there you go. Right Now, and after reading all of those, along with my good friend Jesse, I've come to the conclusion that every author and every book are all basically the same. All of those, right? They all use words, punctuation. Uh, they all use rules of spelling and grammar. Uh, they've all got an introduction before the body of the text. They've all got some kind of conclusion at the end. So, hey, there you go. Just chuck them all together on the same shelf. Now, if I said that to you, you'd conclude that either A, I've just given you the most profound statement on literature that you've ever heard, or that B, I didn't have the first clue what I was talking about and couldn't possibly have consumed all of that material in such a short time or even really understood it. So I hope you choose B right now. I'll help you with the hard ones. So now, what about that statement that all religions are the same? Doesn't that likewise suggest that the person making that statement hasn't actually looked all that deeply into any of them or really understood their central tenets? Because once you do, you realize that there is no way that they can all be true. And brothers and sisters, what we believe matters. It matters because it affects what we do. It matters because ideas have consequences and bad ideas have victims. So to claim that all religions are essentially the same is to say it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. 
but it neglects the fact that you can believe something sincerely and also be sincerely wrong. Adolf Hitler held his beliefs with great sincerity, but that didn't make him right, and it didn't make his views true, because truth by its very nature is exclusive. Uh, If it's true, as Christians believe, that Jesus Christ was crucified and died and rose again from the dead, then it's not true, as Islam claims, that none of that ever happened. See, both of them can't be equally true. Truth is exclusive. Truth is singular. But you know, that doesn't mean that truth has to be cold and uncaring. Because truth for we Christians is personal. The Jesus who said, I am the way, also said, I am the truth. So, you know, in other words, ultimate truth is not a set of propositions, but it's a person. As the Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 2.12, I know whom I have believed. Not what I've believed. Not what I've experienced. Not what I've been taught, but whom. And we know that whom is Jesus Christ. You know, here's something else remarkable I don't want you to miss, and, and, and please hear me on this. You know, if, if you think about it, at the heart of every major world religion, there's a leading exponent, there's a, an advocate or a, a person or a founder who's the driving force behind it, right? And as you study that person, as you look at that leader, whoever it is, something very significant starts to surface because before long there's a division or a distinction between the person and their teaching. Right? If you look at any of them, um, in, in Islam, there's a distinction between Muhammad and the Quran. Right? There's a distinction between Buddha and his noble paths. There's a distinction between Krishna and his object lessons, between Zoroaster and his ethics. Right? There's that separation. And whatever anyone may personally make of those claims, one reality is inescapable, and that is they are all teachers who point to their teaching or who show you some particular way. Right? So in those other faiths, it's not Zoroaster that his followers turn to, it's his words they listen to. It's not Buddha who delivers, but his noble truths that instruct his adherents. It's not Muhammad who transforms Muslims, it's the beauty of the Quran in the original Arabic. See, but by contrast, our Lord Jesus not only taught and pointed to and expounded his message, but he was and is identical to his message. See, the scriptures tell us in him, In Jesus dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Jesus didn't just proclaim the truth. He said, I am the truth. Jesus didn't just show us a way. He said, I am the way. Jesus didn't just open up heavenly portals. He said, I am the door. He didn't just show us how to live. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He said, I am the I am. So to ask why we think that Jesus Christ is the only way is to miss the point entirely because, brothers and sisters, Jesus is not in competition with any of those other faiths. Nobody else in history made the truth claims that he did. Nobody else in history claimed to be able to deal with the problems of the human heart like he did. Nobody else in history claimed as he did to be God with us. And so to say that we believe Jesus is the only way to heaven has nothing at all to do with arrogance and everything to do with introducing people to the one who made that claim and who also proved its believability in himself, in his death, burial, and resurrection. And no matter what lies and and half-truths and deceptions are concocted by men all over the world. Because, you know, there's a remedy for that. Uh, There's a counterweight to falsehood, and we see it in today's text when we read, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace, 
purified seven times. And what a contrast that is. What a tremendous contrast to the lips of lying men to the words of the Lord. And David tells us the words of the Lord are pure. He said they're pure like silver that's been smelted, right? In ancient times, silver ore was purified by being placed in an earthenware vessel and and heated to a high temperature in a clay furnace in the ground until the precious metal liquefied. And then anything else, any impurities floated to the top and were skimmed off. And the process was repeated time after time until the silver was completely purified. Seven times purified, David tells us, which is the biblical number of perfection. And brothers and sisters, God's word is like that. God's word is free from defects. It's perfect. It's faultless. It's free from the deceit and flattery of the wicked, and his words are fully dependable to pass on to the next generation. Right? David wrote, You're, You, O Lord, will keep them, meaning your words. You'll guard us from this generation and forever. And you know, this is directed to us parents and grandparents. And we've been instructed, we've been commanded to teach our children the word of God. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6 says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. And when you lie down and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You see, God here is issuing a parental priority. And parents and grandparents, it begins with us. It begins with us because God must be all important to you and me or he'll never be important to our children. Your heart's got to be right first. It's got to be a heart that wants God. That's the first step. And the second step is then us giving personal instruction, personally imparting information about God to our kids and to our grandkids. Because you have to notice the pronoun that, that was written here. It says you. You shall teach your children diligently. Not they, right? You. And that primarily responsible party is not Sunday school. The primarily responsible party is not the church. It's not Christian school's responsibility. Parents, it's your responsibility, primarily yours and mine. Uh, And don't forget, just because you stop, or that you do stop being parents just because your kids have become parents themselves. You're still mom and dad. And you can still impart the truths of God's word to your kids, whether they're five or 50. See, no Sunday school or church or youth group can substitute for a parent's or a grandparent's responsibility in this realm of learning. Uh, and, and also, now, now please don't mishear me. That doesn't mean you have to endlessly moralize uh, and preach to your children and your grandchildren. Uh, there's nothing more deadly than a continually drumming sermon by a sanctimonious mom or dad. That doesn't mean you have to preach a sermon about everything that happens, but it does mean, it does mean that every truth of God relates to everything in life. And so the challenge to parents is to find what that relationship is and then use it to illustrate and to educate when the occasion arises, imparting nuggets of truth diligently, determinedly to our kids when you're sitting in your house and when you're walking by the way and if you're talking to them on the telephone and when you write notes in their birthday cards or their Christmas greetings because, brothers and sisters, truth matters. And today as we gather, we're going to see that truth in action. Or I guess 
I really should say acted out in the sacrament of baptism. Because in it, the promises of God's word are, are represented and signified and sealed to his people. Because the sacraments are, as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, and as St. Augustine explained, the sacraments are visible words. They're what you hear preached being set before our eyes. And if these sacraments are the visible words of God, we have to make every effort to hear the word that's being preached to our ears. And during the baptism, to see the word that's preached to our eyes, rejoicing that God has graciously revealed himself to us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That same Jesus who in Mark 10 said, let the children come to me. Don't hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. And then he said, truly, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And then you know what he did? He took the children in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them as we're about to do today and passing on those precious truths and this blessed sacrament of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ.